0: Get it, Radical spot smaller commerce, you want to test AB on your PDP, pump up the AOV and your B2C, do the 301, avoid the 404, boost your SEO, get people to the store, got the latest stack, headless, you react, you want that seamless customer experience Attack live shopping, social, set up your syndication, be relevant, that's our recommendation. Radically Smarter Commerce is a podcast presented by Aptus with a focus on smarter commerce and merchandising. And we will talk about trends, new technology, and the importance of being relevant.
1: We will do this by interviewing exciting guests to be inspired by their success stories and insights.
0: And we that are your hosts is Thomas Sjöberg.
1: And Frida Olsson.
0: Welcome to the third episode of Radically Smarter Commerce. We have the goal to be smarter all the time. And our guest today is Tony Pretty, the MD of um, frugo.com. And he has a lot of experience from marketplaces, but today we're gonna talk about how to understand the product lifecycle. cycle. And Frida, is the product life cycle relevant for a visual merchandiser?
1: It is, definitely, and I think it also uh, very much relevant to, to, to have in mind between all the different kind of teams you have uh, within the, the online store. It's not only for the visual merchandising, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely also for the, for the marketing and, and, and buyers and, uh, department. So that is something that I'm really looking forward to talk to, to Tony about, uh, both that and also if there can be some difference between the fashion industry and, and other segments.
0: Today, we are very happy to have Tony Preedy, the Managing Director at Frugo, as a guest here at the podcast. So uh, welcome, Tony. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: Sure. So I currently work for Frugo, which is a marketplace business. We uh, operate in over 40 countries and we help retailers internationalize. So Frugo takes retailers' product data translates it and localizes the pricing and then markets those products in those countries uh, and generates sales for the retailers on a no-sale-no-fee basis. So we're free to join and then we just charge a commission on the sales we generate. Uh, So we do that for thousands of retailers from countries all around the world. Uh, prior to that, I've worked in big home shopping companies, so the Otto Group uh, in Germany and uh, the Shop Direct Group, uh, now known as the Very Group uh, here in the UK. Uh, so all my career has been in uh, data-driven marketing, data warehousing, predictive analytics, and for the last 20 years, uh, online business.
0: Actually, I found one of my kids the other day showing me a product on the Frugal website. And they asked me if this was a website they could trust. And I said, well, go ahead. I'll talk to Tony if you get any problems. Absolutely. Uh, So we we have uh, millions of customers in over 40
2: countries. So the business is very distributed. We don't really have a sort of one single main market, so to speak. Um, The Nordic region is very popular. uh, So Sweden and Norway in particular are big markets for us. Um, but also uh, Britain, Ireland, France, Germany, uh, Australia, the United States, those would be substantial markets for us from a customer point of view. And from a retailer point of view, because of how the business has grown up, we're still quite a small business in in sort of global terms. Um, many of our retailers are British, um, but we also have many European, including Nordic retailers on the platform. And uh, Chinese retailers have started coming onto the platform in the second part of 2020. And they're now starting to become a, a, an important part of our business.
1: Yeah, we will probably talk a little bit more about the uh, different kind of marketplaces uh, in a later episode. Um, but today, we actually plan to talk a little bit more about the, the life cycle of, of products, uh, which I know you have lots of experience and knowledge about as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So, First of all, what do we mean by the life cycle of a product? So my this is going to be comments based on my experience of working in multi-channel retailers where my work has primarily been on the sales and marketing side of the business. And the decision as to whether or not to sell an item is made by the team responsible for planning the assortment. And so in those retail businesses, we would have what we would call a buying and merchandising uh, department. And by merchandising, we really mean stock control in this context. And they make decisions about the width and depth of the product assortment in any given category. And they make decisions as to when to introduce new products to the category. And they also, of course, make decisions as to when to exit products from the category. And that flow of introduction and then time in category culminating in exit from the category is what we mean by the product lifecycle.
0: So how does the product lifecycle operate?
2: So the way I think about this is that the team that's responsible for sourcing products will decide to introduce a product for the first time. And that will usually be managed, the supply chain will be managed by that team, they'll make a decision how many to buy uh, and they'll plan the arrival of that product into a warehouse. And they will assemble some basic information about that product, such as what it is made of, maybe some information about how big it is, how heavy it is, what color it is, perhaps, but we'll come back to that, I guess. Um, but essentially, basic facts about a product. And they then provide that data to the people who are going to be responsible for marketing that product, for selling that product. And it is that team that usually publishes the products into a sales environment. And for the purpose of this conversation, let's talk about e-commerce So there is a team of people who sit at the interface between the buying operation that is sourcing the product and the marketing operation that is selling the product. and They are responsible for using some form of product information management system to compile the data about the products that the customer is going to see. So that will perhaps be enriching some of those product attributes from the basics that the uh, sourcing function described for example deciding which product category it's going to sit in so is this a dress or is it a blouse and if so which is it women's and which subcategory does it sit in and so forth so that it's place in the taxonomy if you will Um, but they will also then add images product descriptions product titles and in some cases labels that will assist with a search engine finding that product and having done all of those things they would then go through a publishing process that um, allows the product to be seen by customers so effectively put it on the website if you will and so that process which is a sort of a, a workflow culminates in the product being available to buy at which point it joins the other products That are available to buy in that category. And from that point on, the marketing people, and I guess also the people responsible for sourcing it, can start to monitor its performance relative to other products in that category. But if you think about it, therefore, every product in a category on a website has an age, if you will. So, time since it was first put on sale. And that could be days or weeks, or it could be could be months and years. It depends largely on the product category. Some product categories um, are characterized by quite rapid changeover of products. So, uh, for example, fast fashion uh, categories would tend to have articles added quite often, uh, quite short buying life cycles so small amounts of stock once they've gone, they've gone and then they move on to the next article and so on and so on or it could be that a basic article, so if you think about uh, DIY shops and the sale of hardware such as nails and screws you know a 3 inch nail is a 3 inch nail and is likely to stay in the assortment for years uh, so Different products have different characteristics. They have different durations of their life on the, on the uh, website or in the, in the assortment. And so when we're managing a product's life cycle, we're trying to understand, or it is useful, I find, to understand products in terms of items that are new that we're trying to discover how popular they are. Items that we already know the popularity of because they have already been established and items that are uh, have been selected to be exited for whatever reason. And in the businesses I've worked in, that might be uh, the buyer would like to buy more but can't because the product no longer exists or sometimes the maker of it no longer is in business. So that's a cause for a product to have to change. Or it might simply be that it was unpopular. Uh, buyers love buying new products; uh, they they, <laughs> they sort of exist to do that, and so um, sometimes they they are more enthusiastic about a product than a customer is, and so you know that's the nature of retail, isn't it? So uh, there will sometimes be products that are introduced, found to be unpopular, and then you're stuck with the stock and you need to get rid of it in order to make room for new articles. Briefly talk about that. That concept of making room is a little bit of a legacy of physical retailers. So, in a world where you're putting your products onto shelves or onto rails and you only have a physical, a limited amount of physical space, assortment management is important because... There's only so much space. You can only fit so many products into the store, only so many lines into the store at the same time. Online doesn't really have that problem. You can ultimately extend and extend and extend, at least until your warehouse is full. But you do have the problem of working capital to manage. So you don't want to have a lot of cash tied up in stock that is going nowhere.
0: I mean, in a sense, you have an infinite shelf display. But on the other hand, you have the question of actually having your products exposed for your visitors. I mean, you can have a million of products, but in the end, it can be hard to show them in the appropriate places, I guess. That's
2: largely true. Uh, Search engines are pretty good at retrieving products from out of the background and bringing them to the foreground in response to a, a precise search query. But that's not usually a good reason for a retailer to be holding a very long tail of stock that is very slow moving. Because usually that line occupies space within the warehouse, which is a real cost. And there's been cash tied up in that stock, which the retailer needs to convert you know, from stock into cash. And so that there is a pressure to maintain the health of the assortment, if you will, by removing articles that are not paying their way.
0: Yeah, because I guess in some situations, in some businesses, you need to have everything. You should have all the spare parts for machines and so on, as the customers expect to find that particular thing. But when it comes to other kinds of industries, it's more that you want the new things, that trends, and the fast-moving products. That's a great
2: example. Um, so, when in the past I've looked at uh, sell-through rate, so you'll often hear the term. Uh, of weeks cover, by which which is calculated as the uh, volume of stock available divided by the average rate of sale per week, and you do divide one by the other to discover how long the stock you're holding will uh, take to run out at the, at that rate of sale. And spare parts are usually a great example of something that look like an outlier on your inventory analysis, because you'll often have a relatively small number, but certainly some hundred spare parts and a very, very low rate of demand. And your inventory system will often tell you, you need to get rid of this product. You need to exit it. You need to discount it. And of course you wouldn't do that for those very, where the where it's a line that's being retained in the assortment for that purpose. But spares or, Those sorts of articles are the exception and generally speaking, what we would be wanting to look at is uh, the stock in the warehouse divided by the rate of sale to understand whether an item is a fast seller or a slow seller. And crucially, if you're planning to buy more of it, whether the stock available will last until the arrival of the next batch of stock, because if not, you're going to go out of stock. Now, if you were in a physical store, that would be seen as a gap on the shelf. And we're all used to going into supermarkets, perhaps, and seeing gaps in shelves, which is where the demand has exceeded the replenishment supply. But uh, in an e-business context, this takes us to the concept of merchandising and which products do we show to customers in what circumstances. And there's, in my experience, something of a trade-off that tends to take place between the marketing people who get judged on things like conversion rate of visitors and cash taken through the digital till. And that encourages them to put in front of customers very popular products. Regardless of whether they're going to sell out, they tend to be very short-sighted. So if you're just obsessed about driving conversion and cash metrics on the website, what you'll uh, expose most is the popular products, the best sellers. And those are possibly the products that we're going to sell anyway. And you're disinclined to show customers products which need exposure in order to sell through the inventory you're holding in the warehouse, where the rate of sale is telling you Well, hang on a minute. You've got two years' stock of this product at the current rate of sale, so you need to increase the rate of sale. Well, how do I do that? Well, one of the ways you can do it is to get more people to look at it. How do I do that? Well, you can drive more traffic using things like PPC and social media and other advertising to get people to go and look at the product or the category, or When customers are browsing your website and you're looking at lists of products and you're trying to figure out which products to put on that list in which order, you can do what is known as boosting a product so that you increase its visibility. And that can increase the rate of sale. Now, it doesn't always increase the rate of sale. So you can get products that are seen relatively infrequently Uh, with a high conversion rate when seen and you look at those products and you think well that's really interesting if only i could get more people to buy those things that would be great so sorry to see those things surely i would sell more and the answer is well you increase the exposure and quite often what you do is just drop the conversion rate because the reason why it was a low visits high conversion rate product is because it was highly specialized and if you show a specialized product to a generic audience that tends not to work very well, but this is where you start to dig into the detail and you start to conduct experiments and you start to use different parameters or rules, or you use a merchandising system that uses AI to do this intelligently to manage product exposure so that you're optimizing for something perhaps a little bit more sophisticated than just cash or conversion rate. And I think one of the most interesting things to think about here is cash margin over time. Because back to that point we were making earlier about what do you do if a product is sat in the warehouse, not selling fast enough? Exposure is one of the techniques we will use, but a retailer will often simply discount that product, so change the price. And changing the price is quite an expensive way of solving the problem. It's the route to Uh, lack of profitability in many, many, many retailers. So if you look at the impact on gross margin of discounting, particularly in fashion businesses, it can be extreme. Um, And so exposing the product or managing product exposure is often a superior economic action to changing the price of the product in margin terms. But, and this is a big but, it requires quite a sophisticated collaborative organization to do that. Because otherwise, if you end up operating a retailer in departmental silos where the price of that markdown is owned by the buying team, then sometimes the marketing people will say, I don't care. I'm not going to sell that product. People don't like it. They don't want it. I'm not going to show it. I'm going to show them these things, which people want. And and you, en- you end up with a conflict.
0: I think the challenge with this is when you're sort of stepping into it a bit is when you do this at scale, where there is a huge amount of products, when you have a big organization, you have different departments, stakeholders, and you want to manage all this. Uh, Frida, I know that you have worked in big organizations, and I guess you have been faced with decisions about what products should be pushed or not. Um, any experience on your side, having worked with this hands on?
1: Well, um, yeah, first of all, I, I agree uh, with everything Tony says. And, and as a visual merchandise, of course, the product life cycle is something that that you you, you work uh, and take decision on almost every day in daily business, uh, and of course as a visual merchandiser, you often want to to highlight and, and boost products as you were talking about as well, uh, to give a certain feeling and visual look for the for the site or campaign or brand or whatever you actually uh, highlight your product in, uh, and also there's a storytelling uh, to to take um, to take in consideration for each uh, for each brands of course. But that's the soft value uh, of of the algorithm or or the way of of boosting a product.
0: So we have the soft values, the visual part of it. We have the business objectives, what we want to prioritize when it comes to our business goals. Uh, Then we have the whole logistics side of it, tied to our manufacturing and if the product is available or not, if it's sold out and and so on. Uh, It seems to be quite delicate scenario to work with that requires both good knowledge and skills internally, and good tools that can help you manage many of these aspects
2: the process i was describing sounds a little bit complicated quite numerical mechanical and a bit soulless Um, and uh, frida makes a really good point about the softer metrics around brands and um, the need to synchronize with campaigns that the brand is executing and those having a Influence on the products that a business will choose to put in prominent locations. So, I guess that's what makes it interesting. Um, you know, it's an art and a science. Uh, retail is um, a blend of many uh, or requires many skills in order to be successful. And uh, whilst I'm a believer in the use of algorithms for optimization of merchandising at scale, I recognize too that there's the need to operate within other constraints such as the visual appearance of a brand and also the need, as exactly as Frida says, to to, to do storytelling because I think uh, ultimately the job of a marketing department is to excite the customer about the products so that they're motivated to buy it and that usually requires them to express Some a story, or to tell a to 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 explain why this product is a great solution for whatever it is the the need is of the customer.
1: But I think that's uh, that's what it's all about, I guess. I mean, the, the, there's need to be a mix of of human <laughs> and uh, machine uh, learning in that sense. And now, when I stepped on to this to this side, uh, working here at Aptus, uh, I get often the, the questions from my old colleagues like, "Are you trying to to replace me now? <laughs> uh, will I not be needed as a visual merchandising? Along it? And it's more like, "Yeah, you definitely will be needed, but you can focus on what you do best." You can add the extra touch, uh, which the machine learning might never be able to to reach or or do uh, as good as you.
2: Yes. I mean, I think about uh, visual merchandising in a physical store environment. And we would often talk about uh, thematic presentations. So we would gather products together and tell a story about them as a collection of products. And uh, in fashion, I guess that would be uh, the creation of outfits or a look. And algorithms are not usually as good at that. I mean, maybe they're getting there. But um, what we've just been talking about is very suitable for a task such as ordering products within a category or ordering products within the search result. But that tends to be the response to quite a precise action taken by the customer, which is to browse to a category or to type some keywords into a search box. Visual merchandising is broader than that and includes the idea of creating themes or stories or encouraging customers to browse and explore a product
0: assortment. To an organization that has challenges in in these areas, getting the departments to work together and do the right priorities, improve their performance, Uh, do you have any tips or thoughts about where to start? What's the most important things to focus on?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) uh, I think there are, first of all, see whether you can apply this concept of um, new items, continuing items, and items marked for exit. So three classes of products. Can you apply one of those three classes to every one of the products that you've got, first of all? Um, Then let's take each one of them in turn. For new products, what we're trying to do is discover what happens when we show them to people. And you've got a benchmark you can use, which is the performance of products with some history which is the second class, what we call the continuing products. So if you have a new product and you start to put it alongside uh, products with a known rate of sale and you see that new product getting bought more often uh, than than the product for which you have the benchmark, it is a good indicator that you've got a successful new product. Um, If you only rank your Existing products by bestseller, which is a common technique, it almost guarantees the new products get buried down the bottom because they're new, they haven't been seen. If they haven't been seen, they haven't been bought, and they don't get ranked in a bestseller listing. So, the merchandising task is to blend the new products with the existing products in order to discover the correct place for them so they can settle, if you will, within uh, the assortment. I, I call this incubation. So you you incubate the new products. You give them special treatment for such for so long as it takes you to work out whether this is going to be a fantastic product or actually it's going to shoot straight out of the assortment and go straight out of the other end because it's terrible. So that's that's how to deal with new products. For existing products, the the key task is to understand how to um, marry demand and supply. So, you've got a certain amount of stock in the warehouse. We described earlier how you would convert that into this concept of weeks availability or cover by taking the inventory and dividing it by the rate of sale uh, by week to give you uh, the duration of the current stock. And the task, as I see it, is to say, well, we don't want to show people things they can't buy, and we want to try to uh, manage the demand so that it matches the supply or indeed the replenishment of that stock in the warehouse so there's a day job if you will of managing product exposure sensitive to stock availability and then products that have been marked as for exit or perhaps problems to uh, items to be discontinued or items with uh, that are listed as concerning for the business Where Perhaps where that analysis of the rate of sale reveals that you've got years of stock at the current rate of sale, there's a complete mismatch between supply and demand, then you have to start to figure out what to do about that and take action. There's no point just analyzing, you've got to take action. But those actions can be varied. They could be uh, increase the amount of promotion on the product, as in get more people to see it, or it could be a price action um or it could be some other form of promotion like um bundling it with another popular product so buy this popular product get this less popular products for a discount for example however you choose to promote those exit products you, what you're trying to do is convert the stock in the warehouse into cash as efficiently as possible um so that that cash can then be reinvested in Products that will ultimately be more popular, and that's ultimately how businesses grow. Great. Anything more you want to add? Oh, good luck. It's hard work. <laughs> uh, it's tough. It's tough, uh, particularly in big organisations, which tend towards a bit of uh, politics, internal politics. That make that can add an extra aspect to all of the above. Um, smaller companies tend to be a bit more collegiate, tend to be a bit more, we're all, we're all in this together, we're all want, we all want each other to win. So the culture of the business certainly has uh, an influence on how some of the activities and behaviors that we've just been describing uh, will operate. One other remark, which is, um, debates about what goes on the homepage is usually completely pointless. I gave up fighting those battles years ago. Uh, so whilst lots of people get very excited about what, whether their product or their category is getting homepage attention, it, it really it really doesn't matter. Um, the Paying attention to what's happening in terms of uh, what happens when people type things into the search box or the order in which products are listed in a category, that's far more important. And for those things, you really need some automation. You need some good quality tools to help you with that automation.
0: So, maybe not a battle on the homepage, but if you would do a rap battle as a hip hop artist, what stage name would you have then? Uh, do you have a past life in that area? Thomas, I think that's an extremely
2: left field question, uh, completely different to what we've just been talking about, uh, and an extremely unlikely event that I will ever need a hip hop stage name. Uh, so, I'm going to choose something really boring like DJ Tony. <laughs> okay. Because uh, I've once upon a time used to spend some time as a DJ. So
0: so what kind of music did you play
2: floor fillers so I, I, anything basically they got people dancing
0: are you retired or uh, do you once a year get up there and i still love music i still love listening to music but no
2: i'm I, funnily enough djing is a lot harder than it looks um you, you've got to really know your audience you've got to know your record collection or back in the days when i was doing it i was using records rather than digital digital music as today um And there's some technique, you know, to to mixing, but uh, mostly it's about uh, uh, being able to capture a moment and and express it in music. And uh, that's a lot harder than it looks. So yeah, I'm completely out of practice. I don't think I could, although I can probably remember how to press the buttons. So I would take it would take a bit of time for me to get back into.
0: Yeah, that's how they do it nowadays. Press the button. They,
2: they they do just press buttons, yeah. But I mean, you you always did. I mean, the the I mean, although scratching was a thing, you know, I never was really into that. But yeah, being able to beat mix is is something you can learn uh, with with turntables. And sort of helps keep the keep, keeps the the continuity of a of of a of a theme when you're playing t- tunes back to back. But um, yeah, that that the mechanical side of it is is pretty straightforward to learn. It's the uh, the artistry that takes a bit more time.
0: We have been really happy to have you, your Tony, on the show today and take part of your experience. And I think there is a lot more to tap into if we would like to talk more about marketplaces, for instance. But if anyone would like to get in contact with you, how are you best reached?
2: I'm um, easily found on LinkedIn. is the uh, the easiest thing to do. Or um, the frugo.com website gives information about our business, and uh, inquiries through that site will find me as well. But uh, LinkedIn.
0: Any last words from you, Frida?
1: no i've been just uh, sitting back and and actually enjoying this conversation a lot i learned uh, many new things so thank you
2: my pleasure and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience
1: thank you so much To be up to date with podcast-related matters, please follow our LinkedIn page. And if you want to participate in discussions or recommend topics and guests, please join our Facebook group as well. Just search for Radically Smarter Commerce and you will find us. And of course, if you want to contact me or Thomas directly, you can always reach out on LinkedIn.
0: And you find this podcast on all platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, as well as at RadicallySmarterCommerce.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review if you like the podcast. It helps us to find new listeners. And you can also follow Aptus at LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you in two weeks.